Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Well, hello, hello again. I'm Lana Reed, and welcome back to this week's edition of Don't Box Me In. Today, my guest is sharing a very personal story of childhood molestation. And, you know, the United States has one of the worst records when it comes to this topic. We lose on average between four and seven children every day to to child abuse and neglect. One in five girls and one in 20 boys is a victim of child sexual abuse. And according to the National Institute of Justice report, three out of four adolescents who have been sexually assaulted were victimized by somebody they knew well. Marsha Barth is an author of the book, The Shattering, and she's also an inspirational speaker for over 20 years. Her book, The Shattering, is a very true story of overcoming sex- childhood sexual abuse. It is the power, story of the power of love, the promise of hope, and the inspiration of knowing that what has happened to us does not define who we are. I want to thank Marsha so much for taking the time to share her life with us today, and I extend a very, very big welcome her way. Marsha, welcome to Don't Box Me In today. Thank you for having me, Lana. It's a pleasure to be on your show today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you so much. So where where am I talking to you today from? I am in Pennsylvania. I was raised in the hills of West Virginia. West Virginia, okay. And... um I don't get to talk to too many people in West Virginia. I, I have my stepmother's from Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, as a matter of fact, true Steeler fan. So I know a little bit about Pennsylvania, very little bit. Uh, yes. So you see, you grew up in West Virginia. Um, you have brothers and sisters? I have three brothers, and uh, the book is actually dedicated to my three brothers because they were always my heroes. Okay, so you're the baby girl? I'm the baby and only girl. Oh, okay, okay. That's like my mom. She's the baby. So you you had some built-in protection along the way, I'm assuming. Yeah, they could hit me, but nobody else could. (laughs) (laughs) But I could run faster. They hit harder, but I could run faster. Things you learn as the baby and the baby girl, huh? (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) So in uh, West Virginia, growing up with the the three boys there, um, I'm assuming it was a mom and a dad in the household. Now, was was that all of you guys were the same parents? Well, actually, my mom and dad divorced when I was eight years old after a very tumultuous uh, marriage of 13 years. Um, And actually, my mom, no one knew of the abuse until I was 19, and I told my fiancé, who is now my husband of 41 years. um, Awesome. Yes. um, But no one knew about it. My brothers didn't know about it until I was, probably in my 30s, 40s, uh, before they knew of it also. It's it's a secret that people keep, and people have asked me why I haven't, why I, you never speak up, and I think that's what's good about the book. It's from a child's perspective, and I think people who don't understand abuse, people who've been abused, and even the abuser, when they read it, they will understand what it does to a child, why a child doesn't speak up, and how abuse actually does happen. Um, it's the fear and the shame, Lana, and the mm-hmm. guilt. And it's the fear and the shame and the guilt and the blame that keeps all abuse under this shadow of secrecy. Yeah, you bring up a good point. A lot of us outsiders looking in, you know, we always say, you know, the very generic standard. Well, why didn't you say anything, or why didn't you tell? But we don't understand 
what the abuser is, uh, you know, what kind of mental uh, damage that the abuser is putting on the person to make them, you know, internalize that and keep that secret. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll have an opportunity to kind of share some of these things with people so that we can assist them in their own personal growth and even as outsiders maybe help somebody along in their journey with that. But I want to kind of take it back to the beginning so my audience gets a, a understanding of you, Marsha, and your story, um, and then we'll grow from there. So back to the um, the marriage between you. You said your parents were got divorced when you were eight years old. That's how soon correct. after? How soon after did I, I guess your stepfather come into the family? It was my real father. It was it your was real father. It was my blood father that sexually abused me. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I, I just want to make sure I'm clear. So the divorce that happened when you were eight years old that was. Your father? It was my blood father, yes. Okay, okay. So when did it start taking place? My dad started sexually abusing me before my mom and dad was even divorced. They were separated. Economics kept us with him because my mom had no income. And back then there was no income. Uh, She went to work for minimum wage, uh, lived with an elderly woman until she could get enough money for an apartment. And my dad stayed with us in the house. The marriage finally split because the cousin that lived with me was 15, and by the time she was 16, my dad had got her pregnant. Oh, wow. And wow. So my mom had to leave. I mean, personally, as a woman, I could not have lived with a man that had got the niece that was living with us that we were supposed to be helping and protecting um, pregnant. And that's another reason people do not understand the dynamics how could I speak up? I saw, mm-hmm. what hap- I saw what happened to this cousin. I mean, my dad became the hero for raising us kids, which he didn't. My mom had more input into us being mm-hmm. than him. But he became the martyr, and and he never became the uh, perpetrator for what he did to my cousin. My cousin became the victim, truly the victim, and it destroyed her life because everyone said she had seduced my dad and it wasn't his fault. And he never got prosecuted. He never. And because of that, before the divorce, I have legal papers that actually show that while my cousin was testifying that he was the father of her baby, the date on that on that paper, my dad had already started to sexually abuse me. So. So much to digest. So yes. much to digest. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. Uh, you I'm know, I'm going to work through it. I, I'm, I'm going to get through this. So your mother, you guys are in the house. Your, your mother is aware of the fact that he is abusing your cousin and now she's pregnant. Is she wasn't she, aware. She was, was she aware of your situation at that time? She was not aware of the cousin until the cousin got pregnant. And that's why she left my dad. She was never aware of my abuse until I was approximately 21 years old. Okay, okay. Were your brothers in the house aware of either you or your cousin's abuse by your father? Only after she got pregnant. My one brother had seen my dad kissing her on the couch. He was only eight at the time. Uh, He got prosecuted severely, persecuted severely for that were telling on my dad that he was kissing the cousin. But outside of that, we were too little to even know really what was going on, the dynamics wow. of it. Wow. Okay, so 
another question here is you and your cousin, the females, the young females in the house, were you aware of each other's circumstances with your father? No, because mine didn't start till she had left. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, may I ask how long did your father abuse you? Till I was 14, old enough to stop him. Okay, so you were still living in the house, though, after 14? Yes, I left. My stepmother came into the picture at that time, and she was a godsend. And when she left, they she left on and off because of the strained relationship they had. She was a wonderful soul. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, I hate to make my dad the evil person, but mm-hmm. I honestly don't know how anyone could live with him long. Mm-hmm. I don't say that cruelly. I'm just saying it honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, but when she left, I vowed when she, if she would ever leave for good, I would leave too, and and I did. Mm-hmm. So you left so we, with her. I didn't leave with her. She went back to Michigan, and at that point, my mom had uh, got an apartment in in the town where I was going to school, and I moved in with her because she was okay. able to do that at that point. Okay, okay, and. Your brothers stayed behind with Dad, or where were your brothers at during this they, time? They were ahead of me, if you remember. I'm the youngest. So that okay. was all the more why I refused to stay in the house, because as long as I had my brothers, I felt I had a form of protection, even though they didn't know what was going on. Um, but when they had went, uh, two of them had went to Vietnam and went to the service, and the, the one that's a year older than me actually had just got married. So when my stepmom left, I had... I saw it coming, and I vowed that the day she leaves, I will leave. I will not leave anything for chance. Okay. So when your stepmother leaves, just so I make sure I have this right, it is just yes. you, your father, and your stepmother in the household? Yes. Okay. So he has no other children outside of the four no. of you guys? No. At that point, Oh, no. well, and, and with the cousin, right? The cousin had long went. She left when I was eight years old. Okay. Um, Now, you mentioned that your cousin was in court in regards to this child that he fathered with her. Um, How did did that situation play out? What happened with that scene? You know, it's very sad. It's it's very sad. And it's sad today, too, if people really knew the story. Um, I did not find that out until after my dad had died, which was 2010. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not. I'm talking five years ago when I went in to get a lot of my things out of the attic, and I have a very nice stepmother, another third stepmother, and uh, she was she was very nice, and we got her things and like that, and in that was the paperwork that of a legal document. The thing that shocked my husband and I both was when we read her testimony. It was not for my dad being persecuted or prosecuted for what he did to her it was Mm -hmm. not for anything except her testimony was to prove get this that she could that adultery was committed in the marriage Mm. it was only proven grounds for the adultery of divorce it was never for prosecution for what he did to her Mm. yeah Mm -mm. yeah that's that's a hard pill to swallow yes indeed i mean you're thinking um, any judge sitting there reading this and saying, okay, I know we're here for divorce, but yeah. wait a minute, we have a child here caught up in 
molestation that we need to kind of address too. I can't ignore that as, you know, I've, I've taken an oath as a judge to, to do certain things and I don't, that, that's it, flooring there. It was a different season. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the 60s. Mm-hmm. And it was a different season. And even now, it just absolutely, I would guess a nice word to say is appalls, appalls me that, yes, I, I know it's not a subject everyone wants to talk about. People might even turn the channel right now when they're here, and I don't want to talk about that. But the thing is, is it is so rampant in America that every two minutes in America, someone is sexually assaulted. It's estimated that 60 million survivors of childhood sexual abuse live right today. These people need help to go from the victim to the victor mentality. That's why the prisons are full. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but mm-hmm. I'm saying until we stop out and advocate against it, have substantial consequences for what people have done with this, instead of caring about the perpetrator more than we're caring caring about the rights of the victim, we have to go forth and make a difference. And that's actually why I'm doing, you know, what I'm doing. Awesome, awesome. You know, I think it's one of the things that we don't realize, and I say this all the time, you know, we walk around in this world and, and we're going through our own personal struggles on the inside, but we don't really realize how much of an impact it makes if we start sharing um, our story with others because then it allows, it frees others up to say, you know what, I'm going through the same thing too and I felt like I was alone and I was living with guilt and shame but I don't have to do that, you know. Here's this other person and, and they came through and they survived so there's no reason why I can't. So, you know, people like you who come to the forefront and share and, and tell people that there is a way to heal and get better and, you know, we're going to recognize, you know, your struggle. And um, yeah, I just think that's an awesome and, and beautiful thing. Thank you, Anna. That's why I go into the prisons. I mean, I spoke at colleges to psychology and criminology students. I spoke of social services to foster parents and, and advocacy. I spoke at uh, state events that uh, for, for against child sexual abuse where governors and representatives have been present. I was their guest speaker. And all those mean a lot to me because I know it's making a difference because I get the feedback from it. But what touches my heart the most and will probably always be the essence of what I do is when I walk into those prisons mm-hmm. and I see the brokenness. Now, I never, ever in 10 years of going into prisons have justified anybody being there. You do the crime, you do the time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a consequence for your choices just like everyone else's. But I do understand why some, not all, but why some make the poor choices they make. And until they can get from the victim mentality to the victor mentality, they will continue to make these. So many of them, which is a given, they do not know that they can heal. They do not know that they do not have to carry this the rest of their life. They don't know that it has shattered their identity, so they do not know that it doesn't define them because all their life it has defined them. Mm-hmm. Awesome points. Awesome points. Marsha, we're going to take a quick uh, commercial break. I'm going to digest a lot of the stuff you said, and we're going to come back and talk some more. So stay with me. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. 
Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Today I'm uh, spending some time with Marsha Barth. She's the author of the book, The Shattering, which is a, a true st- story of overcoming childhood sexual abuse. And uh, before the break, you were making some, some very wonderful points there. And one of the things you said, um, uh, the reasons why you do the work that you do, is you, you want people to understand um, about the poor choices that they make. Now, I want to kind of flip that if I can, because now you're at a point in your life where I'm assuming you've done a lot of personal growth and healing, and um, you know you can you've turned yourself from the victim to the victor. But I want to ask you in regards to your father: um, Is there any understanding that comes at some point so you can, even as the victim, you can say, "I can." I'm in a place where I understand why he did what he did. His his background was so damaged or he was so hurt or he was so broken, or is that not there? Yes, um, it's an amazing journey, the journey of healing, and it is a journey. Uh, we live in a microwave generation, and people want, they, they want patience, but they want it right now, um, and that's kind of a mentality, and that's the way it is with healing, too. I want healing, but I don't want any pain. I don't want it, I just want it instantaneous, but it is a, it is a journey, and I can remember way back when God was just starting me on this healing journey because I had put it under the rug, Lana, and that's mm-hmm. what we do. We shove it under the rug of life. We start tripping in our relationships. We trip through life. We get so messed up. We look at our house, and it looks clean, but we got a carpet so lumpy we can't get over it because mm-hmm. we shoved all the issues of life under it. And people ask me, well, what happened to you, Marty? And I said, well, one day God shook my rug. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and that'll do it. And mm-hmm. but, but he's more than a Humpty Dumpty God. And he put mm-hmm. he didn't just put the pieces together. He made me a new creature in him. And one of the first things to answer your question that I remember was I was going through some old family pictures because I'm I'm a picture person. And uh, I found a picture of my dad when he was four or five years old. And I remember sitting and looking at it. This was even before I had really began the healing journey. And I studied it, and it puzzled me. And I looked at it, and I looked at it, and finally I figured it out. What was wrong was he wasn't, it, even in that picture, and I looked at other pictures of him after that, that he always has the same look on his face. It's a broken and shattered look. When you see a picture of a four- or five-year-old little kid, it's really hard not to see the exuberance of laughter in their eyes and in their face. And there was none of that on his face in any of the pictures I looked at. And there was a brokenness. And what I was really seeing, and it really struck me, was there was anger. Mm. And I look at all the pictures of my dad from little up, and I see anger on his face. Now, what I didn't mention, and it's probably pertinent, is that his father sexually molested me when I was four years old. So you have abuse from your grandfather and your father? Yes, it was his father, yes. Wow. And I know my grandfather did molest others. Uh, he was caught in the act of molesting others. That is so so much to bear. And and I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to grapple with it because I know we're talking West Virginia. We're probably talking sixties. Uh, you know, I, but it's, it's a everywhere, whole... Lana. People want to make it a kind of a joke of a Southern mentality. Yeah, it's in the rich, the poor, the the quote quote normal abnormal it's mm-hmm. we've seen it now we used to just make jokes of it us southern but we've seen it from the priest 
on down to college coaches, down to, you know, Boy Scout leaders. And, and that's not to say that every single one of those people, you got one bad apple in a whole bushel of mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying, you know, this is rampant in any mm-hmm. diversity of life. And we can't put it in a box. We'd like to because then we could protect our kids from that box and say, don't go near that. But it's it's pretty much just out there. And the more we recognize it and the more we advocate against it and make steps to make changes and awareness, the more we will see a change. Mm-hmm. And the more we do that, the more we can help those that have already been victimized by telling them that they can overcome and they can be a victor, not a victim. You know, one of the things that you would hope for is that we get to a place where we never put a child in this situation at all. And there's a quote out there, you know, that says that, you know, hurt people hurt people. So what happens with child abuse is it tends to be, you know, like your grandfather and your father, like a generational type thing. My question to you is, do you think that there is um, a cure or a fix for, for somebody who is a molester? Well, that that's a hard one, and of all the interviews mm-hmm. I've done, I don't know that I've ever been uh, asked that. Statistics aren't very good. Maybe I should answer it that way. Okay. Statist- statistics of a pedophile not hurting a child again are not very good. If you and statistics mm-hmm. aren't very good, period. But th- like the statistics that we mentioned earlier, they're based on a forty percent report rate. The statistics you gave and the statistics I gave are based on 40%. That means 60% have never been reported. So Mm -hmm. the statistics are very askewed. But statistics, as accurate as they can get from doing uh, statistics from pedophiles in prison on down, is that they do not have a high successful rate. What I would suggest and what I try to do, even with the abuser, and this took a lot of healing, is that, First of all, they need to know the devastation that they caused. Second of all, they need to know there's an accountability for what they did. And third of all, whether they ever think they're healed or not, they have no right. They gave that right up when they hurt the first child. They have no right to ever be near children again, even if they feel they are healed, even if everyone else feels that they've overcome that and served their time. They still have no right because if they err, it is the child that suffers, not them, and they don't have that right. Mm-hmm. True, true. You know, and, and everywhere I read the the statistics on you know a pedophile becoming a a quote unquote cured productive uh, you know citizen in society, the numbers are not that favorable in that fact. And um, so I guess at this point, you know, our main concern would be to focus on the abused and how to get them healed and whole again, you know, which is what you're doing. Now, I'm, I'm wondering, um, in your own personal journey, because you, you did keep it uh, a secret for so long, I think you said in your 30s, how did you see, in reflection, how did you see it manifesting in your life? Did you have problems with your relationships, uh, your interactions with people? Yeah, I want to address that, but just, just quickly, I also want to address that. I don't throw the abuser to the wind, even okay. though I, I even though when people uh, and you can see that a lot on my website, you can see it with my interviews. The thing is, is that people have to understand too that when you talk to an abuser, not always, not always, mm-hmm. but there's a high percentage and a high statistic that shows that a high majority of those abusers have been abused. 
So mm-hmm. again, how do you deal with the abused and help them, but not but not deal with the abuser when they're one and the same? Mm-hmm. So so you have to. They can they can heal from their own abuse, and I'm not saying that they can't heal from the other. I'm just saying that it's very important in stipulating that they deserve. I know people don't think this, but they do deserve a chance okay. to be able to heal from what was done to them. At the same time, they do not deserve the chance to mm. ever have an opportunity, be it ever so slight, to hurt a child again. So I, w- I wanted to clarify that. Gotcha. But, but as far as with me, I feel I go through, when I go through the victim to victor, if I can just briefly just show you, there's hurt and pain, Lana. And when there's hurt mm-hmm. and pain, and that, this is going to answer your question, when there's hurt and pain, we naturally feel anger. Mm-hmm. And if people don't believe that, they need to slam their finger in a car door once because I don't care if they're St. Mary. They will not They will mm-hmm. not say, oh, that felt good. <laughs> there, there will be anger. That's natural. Yes. We're made that way. The question, we have no choice over the hurt, we have no choice over the pain, and we have no choice over the anger we feel initially. And this goes with all abuse. But specifying it specifically after that, we do have a choice. And the first choice we have to choose if we are going to hang on to anger or if we're going to release the anger. Because that anger that you feel, you will have a choice to either hang on to that and it will become your cloak of comfort or you will release that. Most people, myself included, at that stage of our healing, we do not want to release it because Mm -hmm. it's the only thing that empowers us. It's the only thing that gives us back control, and it's the only thing that we feel that comforts us. And, to quote a cliche, we feel we have a right to be angry, and in actuality we do. But the question is, if we hang on to anger, it will ricochet like a bullet inside of us. And if it doesn't destroy anybody else, it will destroy you. Mm-mm-mm. So we, the first thing we have to do is with anger. If we can give the anger up, people say, well, what do I do with it? I can't reach inside and pull it out and throw it in the river. Well, I, my journey, what worked for me, and I can share only what worked for me, is that God asked me one day if I wanted to hang on to it or release it. Now, I didn't direct my anger outward as much as I directed it inward. And it, and we will either direct it outward or inward or both. And that's why the suicide rate is so high, too, in, mm-hmm. in the abuse. Um, if we can deal with it, and this is a journey, and there's a whole teaching that goes into every section of this, and we don't have time for that, but there is a forgiveness and an unforgiveness stage. And when we forgive the perpetrator, we do not release him of the accountability for what he's done. We do not accept that what he did was okay. What we do is release him from the debt. The debt that he deserves, according even to the Bible, is that a millstone, which is a con- is a stone mill, put around his neck and to be thrown into the middle of the sea because of what he did to a child. We release him of that debt, and in releasing him of that debt, it actually sets us free. I'm not sure what it does to the perpetrator, but I know what it does. From there, we go on and we can either choose to hold on to unforgiveness, which we either hurt others or ourselves, or we will forgive and we will either help ourselves and help others. And from there, we go to where we will either be a control freak, (laughs) hold on to control because we never want anyone to ever take control from us again, 
mm-hmm. or we will go or we will surrender. And in that process, we will either go from abuse, victim, survivor, overcomer, conqueror, victor to life, or we will go from abuse, victim, survivor to revenge or retaliate or abuser and death. Okay. And that is the journey of healing. But it is a journey. It is a process. It's not a microwave fix. But I can tell you that God <laughs> wants to take you on that journey because he has more for your life. He has the power of love, the promise of hope, and the inspiration of knowing that what happened to you is not your definition of your identity. Awesome, awesome. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about this journey that people go through. So stay with me, everybody. We'll be right back right after this. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, and welcome back. Today I'm hanging out with the author of the book, The Shattering, Ms. Marsha Barth. Uh, it's a book about overcoming childhood sexual abuse. Uh, before the break, Marsha, you were talking about your own personal journey of healing, and I kind of want to explore that a little bit more um, when it comes to, you know, going from victim to victor. There's, there's this group of people around uh you know, uh, the victim to victor person, and usually that is the loved one. And sometimes, um, you know, like in your your case with your mother, she she might have not known what you were going through, but you were probably showing some signs that she just couldn't figure out why is Marsha acting this way. Um, I'm curious, what are some things the, the loved ones around can do when, when a person is going through their journey to kind of embrace them and help them and 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 maybe understand and recognize um, the pain that they're going through? I really appreciate that question. Uh, that, that is such a good question because through the journey uh, back then, my mom was concerned. We spent every weekend with my mom uh, when she did get her own place. We went and we spent every weekend with her. We spent Tuesday nights with her at my grandma's house, and then we spent Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The three days that we were with my dad, officially, we actually usually ended up at my grandma because he would go out drinking. Uh, Mm -hmm. I liked that because when I was up there, I wasn't getting abused. If we did Mm -hmm. stay home, then usually uh, he would abuse me at night. He would come in my room when I was sleeping, and I'd wake up to it. So Mm -hmm. that that was the nightmare of it. It did affect me. I had uh, some serious problems. I was an A student miraculously um that was kind of my ticket out of out of that valley besides what god did for me in that little country church where he let me know that i wasn't defined as broken and shattered that he saw me as lovable he saw me as a real person and he gave me great promise he was the power of love and the promise of hope he was the one who gave me my identity um, and empowered me to do good in school, to get scholarships, and actually to go to college. But going back to when I was a kid, they would catch it today because there's more awareness of it. Um, I I quit eating. I went mm-hmm. to a shell. I lost weight. I couldn't concentrate. I wouldn't partake in games. When I did, I lived in another world. I mm-hmm. went inside of myself so much at the point when I was about 13 years old had some really bad abuse during that period. Uh, I remember my mom said to me one day, she was crying, and she said, Marty, what is wrong? Why won't you tell me what is wrong? 
I don't know what to do to help you. And at that time, she had remarried, but us kids did come first with her. Mm -hmm. And she actually, between this, there were seven kids now, and she said to me, she said, I know you love the ocean. She says, why don't just you and I go away? And I said, we, we can't, Mom. It wouldn't be fair to the others. She said, I'll take care of it. She took me away to Ocean City, Maryland. It was the first time I ever saw the ocean. And I didn't heal overnight, but that act of love, that act of just being one-on-one, she didn't press me, she didn't this or that. She didn't have the tools to, to, to get me the help that she needed, but her love reached out to me. And between that and God getting hold of my heart and my stepmother coming into my life where my dad quit abusing me, um, I, I came out of it. I miraculously began to come out of it. Now, it did come back to bite me when I got older, and I mm-hmm. had to deal with it because you have to deal to heal to feel. Mm-hmm. And if people don't want to deal, they can't heal. And if they don't heal, they, they, they cease to feel. Then they go into relationships and they wonder why they can't feel and receive love and why they can't give love wholeheartedly because they keep a part of that heart closed up they put walls up because they try to protect their heart because they can't let it down because it's been broken too many times Mm -hmm. that's understandable i've been hurt i don't want to put myself in a position to possibly be hurt again i don't know if i can trust you or you or you so um you know although it's an unhealthy cycle to be in it's an understandable cycle to be in how you survive yeah yeah i'm curious live that way yeah, you can't, you can't, it's, it's not, you can't survive that way. I'm, I'm curious, um, when, when your mother did find out, what was her response? It was twofold. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, I knew, I know my mom. I knew what it would be. My husband was the first person I ever told. And I told him when we were engaged because, I'll be honest with you, I hadn't started the healing journey yet. I did not want him to discover later and feel that he got damaged material. It was very important to me that I knew that he loved me regardless of what he thought or was getting. And I, I was blessed. He only loved me more. Mm-hmm. And and he he is my hero, too. And he became, he was the one who said, you need to share this with your mom. And so I did. And then he was the one who said, you need to start sharing this with your brothers. They need to know so that they can heal from their different type of hurt and pain that they suffered under your dad. And so that's what I began to do. And my mom's reaction was what I knew it would be. And I had told my husband, I said, she will blame herself. Mm. She will blame herself for not catching it. She will blame herself for not seeing it. She will blame herself for not having us with her 24-7. And that's exactly what happened. But I have told my mom, I said, do you really think if we lived with you and we went with him on the weekends and it was reversed, do you think you would have stopped the abuse? Mm. And that is the dilemma today with so many split homes. It's very hard because we don't have a choice. You know, mm-hmm. courts will, this one gets rights and this one gets rights. And, and that mother or that father or vice versa, they are at the mercy of the courts that when the people go to the different family members or different functions or whatever, you don't know what your spouse or ex-spouse is taking them to. Um, you don't know who they're being involved with and you don't know what's happening to them. Um, people say, well, you, you know, you should see this, you should see that. My pe- The people that came to my dad's funeral 
in 2010 still consider him the martyr of the valley. Mm. They they still do not get it. Hmm. I think they do now since the book came out. But I mean, <laughs> not not to not to we're just making we're making assumption, and especially when you talk about your grandfather, I'm going to put myself out there on a limb and say that it might not be uncommon in that family structure that practice or you know it might be a a cycle a generation of abusers so what's the problem so you know uncle so-and-so did that to me or cousin so-and-so did that or grandpa so-and-so did that to me why are they making such a big deal out of this you know sometimes people dysfunction becomes normal well you're right and and the only reason it becomes normal is because that's how they've survived Mm-hmm. And I believe that's what happened with my dad. I do believe my dad was abused. And I do believe that his denial, justification, and minimization, because that is the tools of a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. They deny, they minimize, and they justify. And in that toolbox, they also have the tool of manipulation, intimidation. And trust me, they are good at it. Mm-hmm. They, they could, uh, they could uh, manipulate a snake around a pole. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it just comes with the territory, and it's sad to say. But... In the sequel that I will, that is almost done and due to be published, it's called The Shattering, but it's called Finding Julie. The first book is The Shattering, A Child's Innocence Betrayed. But the sequel is The Shattering, Finding Julie. It's in novel form. Both of these are in novel form, so it's very easy reading. It reads like fiction, but it is true. But the second book deals more with the confrontations that I had with my dad from the time I was a little girl on up till I to one week before he died. Mm-hmm. My dad and I had one of our biggest, it was the biggest confrontation we ever had in his hospital room one week before he died. Now, mm-hmm. he didn't know he was going to die a week later. I didn't know he was going to die a week later. But um, I don't like to put things in a neat little box, but something really happened to my dad that last week before he died. All the years of confronting him, all the years of his denial, minimization, and justification, um, Something broke in my dad that week before he died, and he actually let me pray with him. Mm-hmm. And you'd have to know that 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 might sound like a given, but my dad had a stroke eight years before, and he said, you tell Marty she can come see me, but she can't mention Jesus. And I mm-hmm. definitely wouldn't have been allowed to pray for him. Mm-hmm. But in those last hours, he not only let me pray with him when I got done praying, and it wasn't an Alamey prayer, and it wasn't a... a it, it, it was straight to the point. I, I, I bound every pervert spirit, every manipulated, every, every mm-hmm. denial, and uh, I was waiting for him at any time to say, that's enough. Mm-hmm. And when we got done, he looked up at me and he said, you'll never know what that meant to me. Wow. Yeah. So there, there is hope that everyone who's been abused, their life can change. I just am careful how I say that because in in their life changing, they have to understand there's still an accountability. Part of that accountability is they never, they never get that right to be near a child. Mm-hmm. They don't get that right. Well, I'm healed and I paid my time. Don't care. Mm-hmm. You've given up that right when you hurt and broke a, a, and shattered a child. You don't mm-hmm. have that right anymore. That's that's my feeling. That's that's, yeah. that's the Marty version. Legally, yeah. I could be probably combated on that, but that will—that's my stand. <laughs> you know, but it, it's such a—it's it, such a 
dangerous playing field. So you can't really take chances with something, I mean, some, certain things, especially when it comes to a child. You know, I've always said children don't ask to come into this world, you know, and it's us as adults that end up screwing up everything for them, you know. So we have to be very careful as their guardians what type of situations that we put them in. So if you know that this person has a tendency to be this way, be it a molester or, you know, drugs or something like that, there should be extra precautions before you place a child in that type of environment. So I I, I wholeheartedly understand your, your stance what, on I would I would take it a step further. If you suspect it, you mm-hmm. err in favor of the child. But if you don't even suspect it and you you don't even have any knowledge, we should look at our children with the aspect that everybody has that potential. Now, this sounds terrible. People have that potential. Well, not this person, Marty, not this minister, not this priest, mm-hmm. not this coach. You go with the perspective that you protect the child. That's that's the perspective. You're not making someone else a child abuser or a child molester. You're just being going with the perspective. My perspective is this child doesn't need to be alone with an adult. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for this child to be alone with an adult. So you, you, you deal with things from that perspective. And the minute you find there are, then even if they're still innocent, you pull them out of that situation. Why? Because if you're going to err, if you want to err in saying thing or doing anything, you err in favor of that child. Not, why well, I don't want to hurt Uncle so-and-so's feelings. And why does he always have to have little Susie on top of his lap? And mm-hmm. and why every time I walk in, he's he's got her cuddled? Well, there's there's good uncles out there. And, and I want to stress, I had a good family. I had great grandmas. I had another great grandpap. I had three wonderful brothers. I had some great aunts and uncles that really filtered into my life. I was blessed. It's not the family's fault that mm-hmm. we had two that were perverters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Gotcha. It's, you know, um, you know, I had I had other people in my life that actually built back up that men weren't all bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so so everybody isn't a perpetrator. And I know when I come out so direct, a lot of times people think, well, you know, you know, Marty, she just sees ghosts in the closet. She's into this. Well, let me tell you. I've been in the closet, and mm-hmm. there's ghosts in that closet. The problem is you've never been in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so you, you got to pay attention to it. You know, come yeah. into my closet. Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'll find those ghosts are very, very real. And when you, and that's the other thing I want the books to do. When you see the reality that they're, of this child sexual abuse, then you become aware. And then, like I say, you, you don't accuse other people um, there's great uncles, and, and, and they're huggers, and they're lovers, and, and, and mm-hmm. they are good. Do not take that out of a child's life. But I'm just saying, if if you see signs that just are pricking your heart, and you're like, eh, that just seems a little inappropriate. That just seems mm-hmm. like that's not quite right. Well, first of all, you very wisely pull that child out. You don't accuse that person, but you just kind of start pulling them out. Why? Because you're going to err in favor of the child. Um, trust you know hold up Marsha I want you to hold that thought real quick because I want to I want to talk some more about that but we have to take our last commercial break when we come back we're going to talk about some pointers that uh, people can take when it comes to placing children in environments (laughs) 
Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today's uh, topic is childhood sexual abuse, and I'm spending some time with Miss Marsha Barth. She's the author of the book The Shattering. And before the commercial break, there we were talking about erring on the, cost, uh, the, the side of the child, and you, you bring to um, my thought process something that I went through personally. Um, my husband, he was killed uh, when I was 32. My daughter was seven at the time, and a lot of reasons why I did not date after that and most people say oh you know she's the grieving widow and I said my concern for my daughter was why I I was really kind of paranoid about you know how to navigate that bringing a man in the house you know I've got this female child you know especially when she did the teenage thing and everything just started popping here and there you know I became extra paranoid so I really I didn't date at all so my question to you and you were kind of talking about this before Especially as females, uh, how do you how do you navigate that process? And you know, the, the world today, you know, we have all these blended families, and you know, divorce, and so you have this commingling of people. Um, how, what would be your suggestion to to how to bring people? And and I don't want to say just men because you know there are some situations where women are doing the abusing as well. How do you, how do you blend all this stuff together? I think the main thing is you have to. Be aware. Mm-hmm. I think people, this is such an ugly subject and topic, and there's such, it's not that we live in fear, oh, I'm not going to let my child do this and this and this and this. I mean, I, I don't feel you can put your kid in a box, but you have to just have the awareness of what is out there. And, and I don't want to upset people or scare them, but statistics show that one child molester, it's estimated, can actually abuse up to 117 victims before he's ever caught. And, and and that's really scary. And I only say that not to scare people, but that's awareness. This is what I'm talking about. Be aware that child sexual abuse, rape, domestic abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse with children, with young adults, it's rampant in America. And it's a rampant in any social eco type of families it doesn't find one place to rest becoming aware of that as you're aware of that you you go out and you see the clouds in the sky you're aware it's going to rain that day so what do you do you pick up an umbrella Mm -hmm. the more aware you become the more you will be not not wearing everything on the tip of your shoulders ready for someone to knock it off but you'll be aware you'll be more in tune if something's appropriate or inappropriate and if it's inappropriate you don't falsely accuse that person, but you pull your child out of that situation. You're like, okay, uh, they're over having a sleepover somewhere. For some reason, the teenage brother or someone likes to run around the house in their briefs or their underwear, even if they're boxers. Mm-hmm. Okay, that doesn't mean that, that that teenager or that father or anyone else is a child molester, but it means it's kind of not appropriate. Mm-hmm. So you may want to limit the time that, that your child is over there, or you may want to start talking to that child and educate, when you're aware, educate the child on proper touch and improper touch. Mm -hmm. And that if there is improper touch to their personal parts, please come to mommy because you know what? It's nothing you did. Mommy wants to know and, uh, you know, and mommy wants to intervene. And so you, you educate the child at the level the child's at. You don't make them fearful. You don't make them afraid to give anybody a hug or kiss or this or that. But 
with family, but you just, it's the awareness and the education. And you can go online and Google in any state you live in, and you can Google sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, and there's agencies that will come up that will give you pamphlets and information and help you educate you on how to address a child, talk to a child, how to become more aware of the symptoms. I mean, today it probably would be caught. You have a straight-A student, and she's in depression. She's suicidal. She's uh, not being able to concentrate, and she's, you know, off in another world. That child needs help. People saw that. They didn't have the tools. They didn't have the awareness. My mom did, I think, the only thing she knew to do was to try to uh, draw me out with her love um, and assure that child that they can come to you and tell you if they think the moon is falling or the sun isn't going to rise the next day, that they can come tell you about it. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's that's very... relationship, Lana. I think that's a very important point because so many times you hear in these um, abuse stories that somehow or another the abuser managed to get the child to not say anything to anybody. You know, you can't tell because of, you know, your mommy's going to leave or something. So the other parent or the other family members around or the teachers or whatever have to instill so much confidence and faith and trust in the other adults around them that I can come and say anything to you because otherwise the the abuser is going to have a hand up in the situation even with that surety you have to understand my dad didn't say he killed the dog if i told (laughs) say this or that you know one look from my dad would stop me dead that Mm. look was still on his face in 2010 when i was Mm. you know very old <laughs> but when I was in my dad's presence, I still became that eight, nine, ten year old girl, little girl, and most of us do. And the perpetrator doesn't have to say something. It's the look in their eye. It's the threat in their eye. It's the fear and the shame and the guilt and the blame. Uh, for me, I was just like, okay, my cousin spoke up, and no one wanted anything to do with her. They'll think I'm dirty. They'll think it, it's my fault too. Um, Maybe my dad would go to jail. I don't want to be the reason he goes to jail. They'll take us kids away from my mom and dad. Then where will we live? They'll split me and my brothers up, and they're all I have. I mean, um, my mom, wonder if wonder if she w- decides that, you know, it's all her fault and wonder if it, it would kill her. And my dad tried to commit suicide twice. Maybe if he goes to jail and this comes out, he'll kill himself. It'll be all my fault. It'll be all my fault. That is just an essence of what ran through my mind as an eight, nine, ten year old little girl. And even though I wanted to tell my mom, how could I? Mm. People have that to That is understand so much that. weight for such a little person to carry. So much weight. And that's what you're dealing with when you're dealing with a child that's been abused. And that's why you, you just love them. If you love them and they feel safe and you continue to say, honey, I don't know what's bothering you but you can come tell me anytime. We'll, we'll work it out. I don't. If you're afraid of something that it won't work out, I promise you, we'll work it out. I know mm. you're seeing all the negatives if you tell me something, but we can work all the negatives out. I know you don't see the answers, and maybe I don't either, but it's okay. We'll work it out. And I just believe if you love a child, I, I often tell my grandchildren, 
I said, you can come to Mamma about anything <laughs> if you ever want to tell me. And I said, you know, don't ever be afraid to tell Grandma anything. Now, they they actually knew there's a tough side to Grandma. <laughs> you'd, you'd kill them. That's what you do. <laughs> that wall is softy, huh? <laughs> the hillbilly side comes up and they're like, oh. <laughs> they'd be like, yeah, Grandma, yeah, we know what you do. But, um, <laughs> but you love them and you let them have that stability. I often tell my grandchildren, I said, if Grandma, they, they don't know. I just, they're too little yet, but I tell them, um, you know, Grandma didn't have a, a very nice daddy when she was young. And I says, but, you know, God gave me a nice stepdaddy up ahead. And, and I says, you know, things, God can work things out. And so I talked to them like that. But, you know, they, I, I let them know that they can always come and talk to me, that they don't have to be afraid. And it gives them a stability. And I've even said to them, you know, if Grandma would have known what she knows now, I would have spoke to someone. So you give them a stability because when they're in that abuse, there is no stability. Mm-hmm. So you give them a stability, and if you can do that, I believe they will open. But I hear horror stories, Lana. I hear stories of people that have told their parents and went forth, and people didn't believe them. Yeah, and I've they heard uh, prosecuted even more. Yeah, I've heard so many. Uh painful stories like that and you're just kind of like how do you take this person's word over this child's word you know and it's it's so it's very painful to 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 hear that kind of uh take on it and you know i feel like i could probably talk to you for another hour or so marcia but you know it went so quick and now i'm at the end of my hour and i don't know what to do I'm like, well, this always happens to me. I'm at the end of the hour, and I want to ask, like, 22 more questions, and I don't have time for it. I'm like, okay, I don't know. Maybe I need to extend this show out a little bit longer. But well, we're we, at the we end of the hour. <laughs> we, we can always do it again. How's that? Yeah, that's good. I like that. I like that. So we're at the end of the hour here. My guest today has been uh, Miss Marsha Barth. Please, please, please visit her website, MarshaBarth.com, M-A-R-S-H-A-B-A-R-T-H.com, and pick up the book. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. That is all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and I'll see you all next week. 